Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, I'd encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme, on what is a cool, crisp autumn day here in the capital, is Carla Brooks. Carla is the co-founder and director of Brooks Hotels Limited, a family-run collection of boutique B&B hotels based in Bath, Bristol and Edinburgh. Um, Carla, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Scott, for having me. It's a real pleasure, Carla, welcoming you onto the airwaves alongside me today. Um, Normally at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start from that angle because it has proven for leaders within all walks of life to be such a significant challenge. But for yourselves in the hospitality sector, just to what extent has all of this affected things? Well, initially it affected us, uh, you know, incredibly badly insofar as when the COVID pandemic was declared in March and we were shut down um, by the government to protect lives and protect the NHS. So we were closed down for three and a half months and that was obviously very challenging because we had to um, try and keep the staff morale high despite the you know very unusual circumstances that we've never found ourselves in. So we set up our business 13 years ago, and we never had a situation like this. In fact, I don't think anyone had a situation like this because you know the last time there was a pandemic was 1918. So it affected us you know in, immensely, and the challenges were were wide ranging from the initial shock of what to do, and then on a practical level of you know having to close up your business and having to refund or try contact everybody who you who was going to come and stay. So that that was kind of it in a nutshell. And to keep going, really, to keep everyone um, employed and to try to find a way around all of this, which is what we've all had to do, is to try to find a way around to carry on. It's all been about adapting and innovating, hasn't it? Being able to be reactive to the changing circumstances and quite often with quite little notice as well, given the nature of how guidelines can change. And I can imagine among all the uncertainty as well, Carla, that um, there have been quite a few sort of anxious faces within your businesses as well. Some staff that may be worried for not just the future of the business, but also their own health, the health and well-being of their colleagues, their families. So just how has it been sort of managing things from a mental health point of view in-house over the last few months? Well, I think we have been lucky insofar as our team have all been fine you know they've all been healthy um no one has had a contracted the coronavirus um itself um and none of their partners or children have either so that's a blessing so everyone that works with us is in good health so that's the first thing um which i'm very grateful for um secondly trying to keep positive and there's a lot of anxiety of the unknown because life 
the way we had it has, has you know, was taken away from us. But yet we still could, you know, thankfully shop and eat and go go and go to the park and you know, so versus other people's lockdowns it wasn't that bad. So it was really about trying to keep um morale going and keep positive and say this thing will pass and we will survive it. So that was the kind of key message that I was trying to mm. impart team that we will this this won't last forever and there will be a cure and there will be a vaccine eventually and we will you know um get past it together and just reflecting on the last few months and the sort of experience that it's been managing the business through this crisis is there anything that you've learned in your leadership role as you've adapted to this new reality um what i've learned is I'm incredibly grateful for um, the team that I have. A lot of them have been with me since 2008, 2007, since we began the business. So they're more than a team. They're really, you know, an, an extended family. You know, we've been through a financial crisis, which is when we started the business. There was, there was a global financial crisis. And there was an ash cloud crisis, you know, where it was, you know, mm-hmm. you know nobody could travel. There's been lots of ups and downs over 13 years. So what it's reaffirmed to me is that a business is only as good as its people. And um, I feel very lucky that I have a very good team. Certainly seems it. And um, you do hear it said, don't you, that you learn so much more in times of adversity than when things are going well and people do tend to stand up and bring out the best in themselves during difficult times. And it certainly seems that your team have stepped up in-house uh, during the uh, the last few months for sure. Now, um, yeah. normally during a time like this, of course, it is those employees that do step up that look to their business leaders to try and provide them with a little bit of spark a bit of inspiration and reassurance as well just to keep them motivated when you're the one however who is having to take responsibility for that and do all of the motivating when you need a little bit of inspiration and motivation of your own Carla where is it that you would tend to go to look to to find that well in my early business life, I was very fortunate to have um, a mentor called mm. um, Edwina Dunn, and she set up Dunn Humby, which is a loyalty um, data business, um, and grew it with her husband from you know a bedroom back of a bedroom, you know, just the two of them working on a concept, to a you know substantial business with about three thousand employees. So. Um, she was my inspiration and she was very can-do and still is a very, and has, as she has set up um, other businesses, a very can-do person. And that inspired me to um, set up my business and also to just learn from her and how she dealt with challenges. It's an important point to take away from that, actually, I think there, because if you are a young and aspiring entrepreneur looking to make it in business, I think that seeking out a mentor and being willing to learn from other people is one of the best things that you can do, isn't it? Because leadership fundamentally, especially when you're just starting out in business, is all about trial and error. It's all about continuous learning, continuous improvement, just seeing what works. And Ultimately, we cannot actually develop as leaders, can we, without the experience of maybe getting one or two things wrong, learning from those experiences and indeed seeking out experts in certain fields and learning from them. So that's an important thing to consider, isn't it, about when it comes to leadership as a whole? Yes, 
absolutely. And you will make mistakes because we're all human. You know, you will come mm. up with a promotion that doesn't actually work. And you think, well, that was a bit rubbish. Um, and you just have to put it down to, try, as you say, trial and error. And you, it's, be brave enough to try things and to adapt and and not to, um, you know, take it too, don't get too disheartened if it doesn't go wrong. I mean, if it doesn't go right, you have to you have to just try again, you know, tweak it until you get it right. So, you know, if it doesn't appeal to one group of people, maybe it'll appeal to another one. So maybe your message is not right or your target market isn't right. Mm. So you just have to keep on honing, you know, your strategy and your ideas until it, you know, it, it connects with people. Um, and that's just um, what we've all learned, I guess, by so many businesses have pivoted into different areas, which mm. they weren't in before coronavirus, but they've had to do it to, to keep going. So, um, yeah, I think you have to learn. You have to make mistakes. Mm. That's a huge Inevitable. important point. You're very, very right, uh, because um, you, you talk about businesses having to pivot. I've actually had many guests on this program from various different businesses over the course of the last few months, and every single one of them almost has actually said that it's like going back to basics in a lot of cases. It's like looking at new revenue streams, taking things back to the very beginning, like when they were first back in business. And it's another whole new process of learning. And I suppose the lessons that we can take from a crisis like COVID-19, they are one of the few positives that we can take forward from this in what has been quite a dark and dense cloud over all of us. There are still some silver linings, aren't there? Yeah, there's a lot of silver linings, I think. Um, you know, obviously from the tourism point of view, the message has now been sort of connected to people that actually there's a lot of beautiful places to go in, in Great Britain. You don't actually need to go to Greece. I know Greece or Spain or Italy are lovely to get some sunshine. But when they were taken, you know, when we couldn't go because of the travel corridors, you know, going to Cornwall is lovely, going to Devon is lovely, going to Somerset is lovely, going to Scotland, Edinburgh is beautiful. You know, so there's lots of great places to go. So that was a positive that came out. And the other positive I think has come out of coronavirus is how important it is to stay healthy or fit, you know, whatever that version of is for you. You know, obviously if you're an elderly person, you're not going to start doing triathlons, potentially, you know, but it's just getting out and getting fresh air, walking and taking that time out to, to in your diary to get at least a half an hour walk or an hour's run or whatever you can do because the fitter we are as, as a nation, the more we'll be able to handle whatever comes down the road. You're exactly right. And thinking about what may be around the corner for us as a country now, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, Carla, we know it's going to be quite a tricky year ahead. We're going to have to negotiate um, a very difficult winter before we can even think about the long term future. And indeed, even though we do like to be proactive in leadership roles, we can't plan too far ahead, can we? Because the long term is no longer months and years. It's now days and weeks at best. But um, if we can maybe pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment and look maybe a year down the line, where is it that you would like your business and the overall hospitality industry to be and what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved by that point in this uncertain climate well first and foremost i want to be around and i want our business to be around and i want all our staff to be employees and enjoying their jobs and offering safe you know covid19 um policies so that everyone you know, the, 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 hopefully there will be a vaccine, but if there isn't, you know, that we can still carry on because 
we have to learn to live with this virus. It's, it's out there now. You know, we've got to accept it. It might be out there forever. And so we've got to just adapt our lives um, accordingly um, and shield vulnerable and um, elderly. But, you know, life does go on. You know, we do want to have holidays and people deserve to have breaks and to see, you know, something just to get away from their, you know, domestic lives because a lot of people have felt trapped. So I think... 12 months on, I want tourism to be back. And I, you know, I, I'm not saying it's going to be back to 2019 levels, but it's back um, as, a, as a nice thing to do for everyone. And I also want our business to be, you know, um, viable so that we can make plans for moving forward. So obviously this year isn't going to be a profitable year. Our business has um, been massively hit. But our key focus is to keep going. So that's where I would like to get to. And I certainly do wish you all the luck in the world in making those ambitions possible, Carla, because it's so, so important in the context of the uh, the wider industry that it does succeed. And I think that just given how many variables there still are in all of this, because we still don't know how the next year is going to go, I think it would be wonderful to actually catch up and revisit this in future and welcome you back onto our programme just to see how things are coming along behind the scenes and we can assess just how far the sector and indeed the country as a whole have come by that point. Sounds great. I'd love to be involved. I thoroughly welcome that opportunity as well, Carla, because I have really, really enjoyed welcoming you onto the programme this afternoon. And um, most importantly as well, until we do hopefully get to speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on. And I extend that to everybody associated with Brooks Hotels as well. Thank you, Scott. And likewise to you and your family. I'd also love to extend that to the listeners as well who may be tuning into the podcast today. Please do continue to stay well and look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Carla Brooks, co-founder and director of Brooks Hotels Limited, onto the programme today. Next up on the show, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett's exploits from his political career saw him elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. Prior to that, he had served as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and held numerous senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership, all despite being blind from birth. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself. And that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the 
the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain is 
historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S., and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country 
that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, 
experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about 
is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer 
where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, 
uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.